If you please now turn your Bibles to our sermon text, Matthew chapter 9. Our study will be of verses 9 through 13. Let's pray together to the Lord now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the bread of life which has come down, Jesus Christ, upon whom we feed now through the gift of saving faith. We pray that we would digest this word, that we would take it in, that we would meditate upon it, think on it, and consider its themes on this, your Lord's day. We pray, God, that the whole of this time would be offered to you. Free our minds from earthly cares, logistics, sorrows, worries, recreations, all all the things that distract, and free our minds to focus solely upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. This is God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Give attention now as your Lord speaks. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but this, the word of our God, abides forever. You may be seated. No matter what grocery store you go to, there's always a standard set of items that flank you on either side of the grocery checkout aisle. On the right, you'll see all the candy bars, the gum, maybe a selection of gift cards to various restaurants, and then on the left, you'll see America's original fake news, the tabloids. Tabloids are where journalistic integrity goes to die. Now, personally, I've never so much as leafed through a single tabloid, but I'm absolutely certain that they are the one exception to the general rule, you can't judge a book by its cover. Tabloids are absolutely outrageous. The stories that they cover range from everything to uh, celebrity excessive weight gain, weight loss, the occasional alien abduction, and then always a celebrity divorce or scandal, right? Tabloids thrive on the wow factor or the scandal, the, the gotcha, that's, that's their bread and butter. And if we traveled back in time to an ancient Near East Publix and we were in the checkout aisle, the subject of our study this morning, the events of this text, would have made great fodder for tabloids. This is probably what they would have read. Big, bold letters, exposed, self-proclaimed son of man, caught with sinful scum, or busted, Famous rabbi caught reclining with Capernaum's evil elites. This is scandalous what's happening. Truly, as verse 10 says, there is something to behold in this text. The Son of Man and Son of God choosing to recline at tables with sinners. The most deplorable bunch of human beings that you can imagine. But what the unbelieving world sees as scandalous, you and I, those in the household of faith, see as the only hope of salvation for sinful mankind. 
Because if Jesus here were just to mingle only with the righteous, only with the the people who have it all together, then what hope would there be for you and me? Zero. For we all, as sheep, have gone astray, each and every one to his own way, but upon Christ was laid the iniquity of us all. Jesus' purpose statement is given to us there in verse 13. Every preacher loves a good purpose statement. It makes his preaching very easy. That the whole reason for the incarnation, the reason that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God, came to be incarnate and came to die upon a cross was to call sinners to salvation. Verse 13, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It doesn't get much simpler than that. But it also doesn't get more glorious than that, does it? That Jesus Christ came not to save the righteous, but sinners. It's the greatest fact of human history that there is a hope of salvation for people like you and me that Jesus Christ has come to call not the righteous, but sinners. That's the simple point of the text this morning. And what I want to highlight for even those of you who are lifelong Christians, I want to highlight this glorious truth to you once again that Jesus Christ came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There are two episodes that compose this text. And in each episode, we see a glorious truth concerning Christ's relation to sinners, how he treats sinners. In verses 9 and 10, you see that Christ is intimate with sinners, our first point, that Christ is intimate with sinners. And then from verses 11 through 13, you see that Christ is interested in sinners, not in the righteous, but sinners like you and me. Praise the Lord. So first, verses 9 and 10 you see that Jesus is is going for for shock value, something that nobody else expects. He is intimate with sinners. First, we see in verse 9 that there is a calling, that he calls such a sinner in the calling of Matthew. And Jesus passed on from there. This is after the healing of the paralytic. And he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So in verse 9, we get the calling. Remember the setting. In verse 1 of the chapter, here in chapter 9, Jesus got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. This is the city of not Nazareth, but Capernaum. He had set up operations. He'd set up home base in the city of Capernaum, which was on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And at this point of his ministry, Jesus' fame has spread abroad, but it's particularly potent here at home. If all of these neighboring nations know who Jesus is, then you'd have to be living under a rock in Capernaum not to know about this preacher and healer. He was the talk of the town. But despite his many miracles, there were still some people who went about their day-to-day as sordid as it may have been. Enter scene Matthew. Now Matthew, we learn of the man who's called. He is a tax collector. Now, we have lawyer jokes in 21st century America. Um, They're good lawyers. Uh, But you understand that a tax collector, this was the worst job that you could possibly occupy in the ancient world. You were despised by anyone and everyone. But really, what Matthew is doing here is he's something like a, a, a toll booth operator. Raise your hand if you like paying tolls. One person, all right. Um, personally, I'm not a fan, Right? When Sarah and I, we went on a cruise uh, five or so years ago, we had to drive north to go to New York City, 
And we were told, and rightly so, bring at least 50 bucks with you because you'll pay all that in tolls. To cross over the Gothel's Bridge alone was $20. Now, at this point in the ancient world, there was a trade route that was snaking from all the way up from Egypt to the northern kingdom of Syria. And Capernaum was right there, sitting pretty. And so there was a lot of money that passed through Matthew's hands on this toll road. He was the toll booth operator. But it wasn't just money that had passed through his hands. There was also a lot of money that went into his pocket. Because whatever you could glean, whatever you could squeeze from the people from whom you collected taxes, that was yours to keep. So there was incentive for him to extort exorbitant sums of money from the unsuspecting passerbys. So Matthew is, according to his own people, a traitor. He's in service to Rome, and he has sold his soul, a traitor to the Jewish people, and he has given up the whole of his life in service to Caesar, but even Caesar doesn't care for Matthew. No, he's just a pawn in the worldwide domination of the Roman Empire, a traitor and a meaningless cog in the Roman machine. So this Matthew is the one that Jesus sets his sights on. And you see that the response of this very simple calling, it's, it's simply this, follow me. And what does Matthew do? He rose and followed him. Now, now the text, Matthew here, remember that this is Matthew's own calling, and Matthew's the author of this gospel, so he's showing tremendous humility. But if you look at Luke's gospel, he gives us the whole story. He says that he left everything and followed Jesus, which leads us to believe that Matthew was a very wealthy man, hence why he's able to throw this lavish banquet for Jesus at his house in in verse 10. So Matthew left everything for the cause of Christ, And the first thing that jumps out to us about his response is its immediacy. Look back at your Bible at chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Do you see what's there? A scribe. This is somebody who's skilled in the law of Moses. A scribe comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then one of his disciples, somebody who's already following Jesus, says, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. You see, both of these men, even though they were the likeliest candidates to be in Jesus' inner circle, they both had hang-ups. That there were some caveats, there were some qualifications before they could really follow Jesus. And here is the most despicable human being imaginable saying, yes, I'll come. No strings attached. Don't you love how Jesus is able to show us through these weak instruments the power of his effectual call? That here he is bringing Matthew, the tax collector, and he responds in a more faith-filled manner than anyone before him. This is a good reminder to all of those of you here this morning who might be sitting in your tax booth, right? that you might be sitting in your tax booth, that you maybe even have existed in a Capernaum of sorts in the church and you have seen the glory of Christ. You've been around and had a proximity to the things of the gospel, but you're still contenting yourself with the things of the tax booth, the pursuit of the world's pleasure, power, comfort, ease, whatever it may be. Heed the example of Matthew and leave it all. For Matthew, it may have been that he knew of Christ, that he had, well, I certainly would have heard of him, but that he had maybe pondered this in his heart for a time, thinking that maybe I'll follow Jesus. 
And in the providence of God and in the kindness of God, Jesus does circle back and call him, but all that you know that you have today is today. That's why scripture says today is the day of salvation. You don't know if there will be another gospel opportunity to which Christ will come and circle back. You have to leave your tax booth right now. Forsake your wicked way and flee to Christ. Stop whatever you're doing and flee to him while he may be found. Take no chances with your soul, but come to Christ today. Well, this is the calling of Matthew. It's a calling that nobody expected, but certainly in verse 10, there is something on a more broad scale that nobody expected. Not only that Jesus would call a tax collector to follow him, but that Jesus would purposefully commune with a whole slew of tax collectors and sinners. Think about it. Think about this. That even these Pharisees, in their going abouts, and their you know, mingling in the culture, they couldn't help but you know, brush up against the occasional tax collector or the sinner. But for Jesus to be reclining at table and having table fellowship with the underbelly of Israel, well, that is particularly scandalous, isn't it? This is not at all what the scribes and Pharisees did. No, they would have distanced themselves as much as humanly possible from these people. One, they personally just probably thought they were icky. But then two, they didn't want to be ceremonially unclean. Because if you go into the house of a Gentile, you're ceremonially unclean. And if you hang out with Jews who themselves have no regard for the law of God, then you risk perhaps contracting their own ceremonial defilement. But here's Jesus choosing to relate to the unsavory of society. This is the company that he keeps. And in this, we see several beautiful applications for how Christ is intimate with sinners. He, he intimately says to Matthew, come and follow me. But then he also here reclines at table in the house of Matthew, going into the, into the belly of the beast, into enemy territory, and he is reclining with tax collectors and sinners. In this, we see that Jesus is not afraid to get his hands dirty. That there is this desire that he has for sinners that you and I probably don't have for sinners ourselves. That if Jesus were to treat us the way that we treat people who are outside of the church, then salvation would be shut to us but that the Son of God has condescended and that he has chosen to associate with lowly sinners like you and me, then that is a wonderful motivation for you and I to forego our own personal pride and to do unto the least of these what Christ has done to us. I love that Christ shows us his, his, his very heart, that he is knowing these people personally, reclining with sinners I have no problem with Bible tracts, but Jesus doesn't just hand them a Bible tract and say, you're on your own. He's in a house with unbelievers, talking and having dinner conversation, which is where I'd ask you, can you remember the last time that you had a meaningful conversation with somebody who wasn't a Christian? A, a really meaningful conversation. I'm not even saying that you had to share the gospel with them, but when's the last time that you had an unbeliever over to your home for supper? As a pastor, this is particularly difficult because my calling is to shepherd the flock. And yet, the calling of Christ is also that we go and find lost sheep, isn't it? How do we do with that? I think that as a church, locally and, 
And, you know, here abroad in America, we do a wonderful job at loving one another, but do we love the stranger very well? There's this word, Greek word, it's called xenophilia, stranger love. This is the kind of hospitality that we're to show to the stranger, to the foreigner, to the exile. For such were all of us. But yet Christ brought us in. How do we love those outside of the church? What avenues, what opportunities do we have to speak into their lives and to to show them as lights in the world that there is hope in Christ? Now, some people, they'll say, well, I I do interact with the unbelieving world. You know, I, I plunge myself headlong into those situations, and yet we also have to be careful not to succumb to the chameleon effect. The chameleon effect. This is actually the official term. It's when a person mimics other people's accents. Maybe you uh, spend a little bit of time in the American South and you adopt y'all, like I have, right? You might say that's the chameleon effect. That you start to talk like, that you start to act like the people that you're around. And a lot of really well-meaning Christians will say, in order to really and meaningfully reach out to the world, I need to act more like a chameleon that I need to adopt the world's interests, that I need to prove, you know, the worldliness and the relatability, you know, how relatable I am to the unbelieving world, and that's going to be my inside track to give them the gospel. That is not true. You are lights in the world. You are lights shining in the darkness, the salt of the earth. Don't lose your saltiness for the sake of the gospel. There's no such thing. Rather than being chameleons, we're to be like lightning bugs. Where do lightning bugs thrive? Where do they shine? In the darkness. They don't dim their lights for the sake of the darkness. No, they shine all the more brightly. And so must you shine brightly, giving the gospel wherever the Lord has put you. So, two applications. Don't be afraid to go to the unbeliever, but don't be as the unbeliever. You believe, and you give the gospel there. This is what Christ has done, and this is a model for us. So this is Christ's intimacy with sinners. He he is not afraid. He's not keeping them at arm's length, not worrying about risking their defilement, but rather he comes to cleanse them and to give them the gospel. And think of that too. What a wonderful fact that this happens in Matthew's house to think of his heart. I wonder if some of you, maybe when you became a Christian, when you were an adult, did you have a list of people where you said, I want them to know this Christ. I'm going to do everything in my power to put the gospel before them. Well, what are, you, what are we to do? Invite them to church. Invite people to church. Have Bible studies in your homes. Saturate your lives. Have a heavenliness about your conversation. Bring the world in and do not be afraid to be intimate with sinners. Christ was intimate with sinners, and so you must be as well. But also, very simply, we see that in verses 11 through 13, Christ is interested in sinners. That his interest is not in giving a rubber seal of approval to people who are already righteous, but to pursue the unrighteous so as to make them righteous. What does he do? Well, he explains first his intentions by that question there prompted in verse 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says in verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That's a great analogy. On the surface, it would seem, as what Jesus is saying, is that's not a very good question. It would be akin to you and me asking, why does this pilot spend so much time around airplanes? Why does this lifeguard spend so much time swimming in the water? 
You might not know how to answer that question, right? Because essential to even asking such a question is a fundamental misunderstanding of the goals and objectives of a pilot and a lifeguard. Pilots fly planes. Lifeguards swim in water. It's a part of their very mission. And the only reason why the scribes and Pharisees ask, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners is because they don't know who Jesus is. They don't understand his mission. They think that the Messiah, the long prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament, was going to come and be a nationalistic savior. That he was going to lift the people of the Jews from the tyranny and the oppression of the Roman Empire, and that they were, he would restore the kingdom of Zion to its glory in the Solomonic days. That's what they thought. So yes, in their minds, with their perception of who the Messiah would be, Jesus doesn't fit the bill. It's incongruous for him to be associating with tax collectors and sinners when he should be at the head of the army leading the charge against Caesar. But Jesus says, that's not the purpose for which I've come. Why am I associating with these guilty people? Because it's for these guilty people for whom I've come. That I came for sinners. His purpose was to pluck men and women, boys and girls, from every tribe, tongue, and nation from the pit of hell. That's Jesus' purpose. He came to preach and to save and to call sinners to salvation. And this reminds us of something that you and I are prone to forget. That if Jesus came to call sinners, and if you believe yourself to be in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, then this reminds you that you're a sinner at your root. That I'm a sinner. That being a Christian is not a claim to self-righteousness, but to an alien righteousness. That we're not worthy. That we don't have it together. That we're a sinful bunch, but that Christ is a loving Savior and pouring out His grace on us. This is what we admit every time. We have no works in which we can boast even now as Christians because it's the Spirit of God working in us to will and to do His good pleasure. Jesus didn't come for well people. He came for the sick. Just as a doctor doesn't exist for the sake of saying, well, wonderful, you're you're in good shape. No, to minister to those who are in need. You must know your need. But then he goes beyond the analogy, and he just says it outright. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I do love the wording there, because in verse 11, you know there's probably a little bit of vinegar in that question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Some teacher that you follow, this antinomian teacher who has no care for the law of Moses, why does your teacher do this? And Jesus says this, Go and learn what this means. The teacher is schooling the teachers. And what he tells them to go learn is Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 that we read for our Old Testament scripture reading. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There's another very similar text in the Old Testament. We've preached through it before. 1 Samuel 15. When, when Saul offers sacrifice and it's not accepted by God, what did Samuel say to him? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The error of Hosea's day, the error that he decried, was that the people were religious, but they were godless. 
that all the religion, that the, that the temple sacrifices, that the religious cultists, that everything was in ship shape, but the people's hearts they didn't bring into the worship of God. And so likewise, with these Pharisees and their external show of religion, they think that they can cover up their inward depravity of heart, but Jesus says, I don't desire your sacrifices. Your orthodoxy is worthless if you do not have steadfast love. And steadfast love, you know, extends. It's, it's this hesed love. It's this hesed love that God condescends and gives to us. And then our hesed, our steadfast love, is directed towards God with fringe benefits towards our fellow man. This is hesed love. God doesn't just desire your orthodoxy. Your religious privileges don't save you. Being savingly united and relying upon Christ, that's all that saves you. And that's what God requires. This external show of religion, Jesus exposes it for what it is, hollow. He desires the heart. Reminds me of an exchange that Charles Haddon Spurgeon had with a young man who wanted entrance into the preacher's college. Spurgeon writes this, he said, There was a young man who sent word into my vestry one Sabbath morning that he must see me at once. His audacity admitted him, and when he was before me, he said, Sir, I want to enter your college, and I should like to enter it at once. Well, sir, I said, I fear we have no room for you at present, but your case shall be considered. But mine is a very remarkable case, sir. You probably have never received such an application as mine before. Very good. We'll see about it. The secretary will give you one of the application papers. You can see me on Monday. Well, he came Monday, bringing with him the questions, answered in a most extraordinary manner. As to books, he claimed to have read all ancient and modern literature, and after giving an immense list, he added, this is but a selection. I have read most extensively in all departments. As to his preaching, he could produce the highest testimonials, but hardly thought they would be needed, as a personal interview would convince me of his ability at once. His surprise was great when I said, Sir, I am obliged to tell you that I cannot receive you. Why not, sir? I will tell you plainly. You are so dreadfully clever that I could not insult you by receiving you into our college, where we have none but ordinary men. The president, the tutors, students were all men of moderate, modest attainments, and you would have to condescend too much in coming to us. He looked at me severely and said with dignity, do you mean to say that because I have an unusual genius and have produced in myself a gigantic mind such as is rarely seen that I'm refused admittance into your college? Yes, I replied as calmly as I could, considering the overpowering awe which his genius inspired for that very reason. This young man believed that his own merits were the grounds of admittance into the pastor's college. And so too did these Pharisees believe that their religious orthodoxy, their box checking, was going to punch their ticket to heaven. But like that poor student, these Pharisees would realize one day that if they tried to grant, ent be granted entrance into heaven by their own merits, that Jesus would say, I have nothing to offer you. Heaven is not for righteous people. Heaven is for sinners who have been made righteous. If you are here this morning and you would plume yourself, or you believe that you have something that commends you to God, whether it be your own record of righteousness, whether it be your religious privileges, whether it be that you're a preacher of the gospel, that you're an elder, you're a deacon, that you're a pastor's daughter, whatever it is, 
And you think that that will grant you entrance. Jesus, and I tell you in his name, that he has nothing to offer you. But if you are a guilty, vile, and helpless sinner like me, then I do have good news for you, because there is a Savior who will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This Jesus came not to save righteous persons, but to save sinners. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fondness or fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is for you to feel your need of him. Do you know what fitness the Lord requires? It's not erudition. It's not that you be well read. It's not that you be a masterful preacher, that you would tie enormous sums of money to the church. All that he requires is that you feel your need of him and that you find your needs satisfied in Christ Jesus. You'll never be fit by your own merits. If you think you will, then Jesus has nothing for you. He tells us elsewhere in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that we proclaim every single week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, that there is salvation for a dying world. Have you proclaimed this gospel? Have, have you not only proclaimed this gospel, have you received this gospel for yourself? J.C. Ryle, I've been reading his book again, uh, devotionally, uh, it's holiness. And he talks about religious privileges. And how it's wonderful to be raised in the church. It's wonderful to sit under the preaching of the word, to receive the sacraments. But if you don't receive Christ, if you don't have your parchment, then you won't be granted entry into the celestial city. You need Christ. You need his merits. So would you trade your rags and take his robes? Would you take your guilt and receive his righteousness? The good news of the gospel is this, that are you lost? Come to Christ and you'll be found. Are you guilty? Come to Christ, and you'll receive his pardon. Are you weak? Come to Christ, you'll receive true strength. Are you sick? Come to Christ, he will make you well. Are you a sinner? If so, praise be to God, for he came to save sinners, and not the righteous. Christ is intimate with sinners, and his interest is in sinners. Where is your interest today? If you're self-interested, if you're interested in your own righteousness, then you haven't been listening. But hear Jesus, I've come to call not righteous, but sinners. Amen. Father, we thank you that as we consider your glorious grace, and even as we approach this supper, we understand that the prerequisite for admittance to this table is that we would confess our own sin but that we would cling to the Christ that you have freely offered to sinners. Lord, help us to never grow tired of this. Help our love, our first love, never to go cold or dim. But would we never flee from your presence? Would we run into your arms for you desire to be intimate with sinners, to recline with us, to fellowship with us? And you've come to save us. So God, as we partake of this supper, would you... Remind us of this great fact, that we are sinners, saved by a great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.